0: Close Reads here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I am David Kern and as always on Close Reads I am joined by Angelina Sanford and Tim McIntosh. Angelina is sitting across the table from me here at Cersei HQ and Tim is on an adventure somewhere in Wyoming. Rock going? Springs Wyoming. Rock Springs to be more specific. How's, so Tim, you're journeying
1: Eastward. That's right. I started Monday from Eugene and I spent Monday evening in Boise at a Airbnb, and I'm staying at a holiday inn today because I wanted to ensure, David, that I had a strong, (laughs) clear internet connection for recording close reads.
2: We really appreciate that, Tim. Thank you.
1: But I that doesn't sound sincere.
2: I'm sorry, it's David you should see your face. No, David set up the office in a way that I can't help but use my NPR voice. And it's a little disturbing. So I did a whole telethon thing before you came on. Oh, We asked
0: a bunch of people for money that yeah. aren't listening.
2: If you like the program you're listening to, I just, <laughs> it's just the way he's got it set up. I just I'm automatically. So, Tim, thank you very much for having the Internet. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, we we are in uh we're in my office actually the group the office that Graham and I share instead of in the studio space because we've been having some computer issues. So I'm hopeful that this is going to solve some of the computer issues. Uh, I'm not I'm I'm hopeful but not optimistic. <laughs> um, but we we shall see. So Tim, you are why are you in Wyoming? Well. Wha- That's not like, why would anybody go to Wyoming? It's just, why are you in Wyoming?
2: Yeah, we've now lost all 12 of our Wyoming listeners.
0: 12 might be stretching it. (laughs) Um, The whole state has like 200,000 people in it.
1: Wyoming is not the most
2: populous state.
1: I'm I'm in Wyoming for two reasons. One, because I'm on my way to the Searcy Regional Conference in Colorado Springs. Ding, ding, ding. Plug. And secondly, because after I leave Colorado Springs... I'm starting a tour which I have playfully dubbed the um, coming to a theater near you tour or just theater near you tour in which I'm going to try to make inroads toward um, theaters and artistic directors of theaters that I would like to collaborate with in the future because I write plays but I think we've talked about this on the show. Once you write a good play, it's not like you've written a good novel and you just go find a publisher or an agent and your work is done. You, once you write a good play, it's like you have to install a series of productions, smaller theaters to larger theaters to larger theaters. So I'm looking for artistic directors in theaters that I can collaborate with.
2: So my homeschool co-op drama class not gonna get a visit from you.
1: Well, I kind of <laughs> been hoping to drop by. Um...
2: I mean, how local do you want this local theater to be? <laughs> how
1: theatrical,
0: theatrical <laughs> do you want this theater to be? I define the theater.
2: <laughs> I mean, they're not like you know SAG actors or anything like you know.
0: No, which means they're happy.
2: <laughs> oh. And willing to work for free.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the union's not involved. <laughs> um, well, I think I might have just offended a lot of people who are in unions. Uh, David that was inadvertent. is just
2: losing all of our listeners.
0: First Wyoming, right. the unions. Yeah, what? but at least the people in Wyoming will be happy with my union joke. <laughs> the people in the unions will be happy with my Wyoming yeah, joke. Yeah, so, so
2: <laughs> he's just playing the middle as usual.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, we are here.
1: Iowa. Whatever you do, don't lose Iowa.
0: I <laughs> will. I live
2: there.
0: That'd be heartbreaking.
2: You're right. we got to hold on to those swing states.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Iowa um, pigeon
1: farmers, we cannot offend that kind of like, we've got a tight grip in that market.
0: Did you just refer to them as pigeon farmers?
1: No, I'm just saying the, that particular market within Iowa.
0: The, the, pigeon, the pigeon farmer market of Iowa?
1: Market of Iowa.
0: Okay. Well, I don't think we're gonna have a problem with that. Um so we are here to talk about the murder on the Orient Express. Actually, it's not the murder, it's murder on the Orient Express. A uh
2: I was just about to say this conversation got derailed, so now look how brought that back.
0: Ooh, yeah. nice. So uh we we are back on the tracks again. Um ooh. and so this is a Agatha Christie novel. It's probably her most popular one. It's not necessarily considered her masterpiece, but it is the one that is most widely read. And as we've talked about before, on November 10th, I almost said November 6th, but November 10th, the movie version is coming out starring Kenneth Branagh, Johnny Depp, Daisy Ridley... Michelle Pfeiffer, G, uh, Judy Dench, uh, I could go on and on.
2: Dame Judy I, Dench. Yeah, I,
0: I apologize. How American of me. So um, American. Sir Johnny Depp. Um,
2: <laughs> Not yet, <laughs> but I'm sure it's coming.
0: And uh, so we're going to talk about this book. We're going to spend uh, three episodes on the book itself, I guess. So we're going to talk about part one today. Then next week, we're going to talk about part two. And then guess what we're going to talk about the next week after that?
2: Uh, part four? Part... Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> Number, no. Numbers are hard.
0: Yeah, numbers are hard. Part three. And then we're going to do two extra episodes because we're going to do a Q&A episode. Um, and then we're going to do a, tie, a movie tie-in episode, which will allow us to do a lot of comparison between the movie and the book and stuff. And one of the reasons I wanted to do it this way is because it gives us three episodes while we're reading the book. But a mystery story is part of the fun of a mystery story is talking about when it's all over, right? And you know who did it. And looking at how she constructed the story and all that kind of stuff, so I wanted to do two episodes on that, and I think the Q and A episode and the movie tie-in episode will allow us to do that. Yeah. Um, anybody who hasn't read I Got Them Christie before will be in for a treat. Uh, Angelina and I were talking about our childhood uh, mystery reading habits, and I was telling her that I probably read every, at least the Poirot. Um, Novel that, novels that she wrote. I didn't read all the Miss Marple stuff, but I read every Poirot novel. So that's like, what, 25 or 30 of them. So um, I'm a big fan, although I haven't read this one for at least 10 years. So Angelina was saying that she remembers a lot of it. And I actually, I think I remember who who done it, but I'm, I'm not 100% sure on that. So, Tim, as we get the conversation going, I'm curious to hear from you whether you have read Agatha Christie much and if so what your history with her has been like
1: i have no history of reading agatha christie i think i saw the mouse what track. is
2: what is wrong with you
1: am i am i shaking
2: no i just mean not like oh, what? what is wrong with you as a human being like every time we talk about childhood books like what like you just you're like twelve with a set of Herman Hesse novels somewhere. Like I don't understand how you didn't read Agatha Christie.
1: Yeah, I was reading <laughs> Remembrance of Things Past when I was
2: twelve. And it kind of, really, really, that know, was so that was know. your pre <laughs> reading. A Remembrance of Things Past. those was at that, that early decade. You had a lot of reflecting you needed to I had do. A lot, into. lot of
1: reflecting to do at age twelve. <laughs>
2: Uh huh. Uh-huh. No, Co- genuinely... Continue, please. Yeah, tell
0: us more about. Continue
2: this. in <laughs> confessing this deep, deep character flaw that you have not <laughs> yeah. read in the Agatha
1: I think I saw the. does as a play, but other than oh, that,
2: oh. I think I, we're. I just. I think we're getting to the root issue right here. somebody's a drama snob.
1: <laughs> yeah. I am a little bit of a drama snob. No, that's not true. I just
2: I don't know why. She just... A drama snob or a drama queen? Which is it, Tim? Maybe,
0: yeah, maybe both. <laughs> <laughs> Angelina's bringing it against you this week. It's because
2: um. I'm sitting in Graham's desk, like I feel like something yeah. has just come over.
0: Graham and I, and Graham and I have a. Our desks are like kind of next to each other, basically. They're like our computers, like the back of our computers face each other. So right now, I'm looking at her across the desk, and she is sitting where Graham would normally sit it's, during the day. But I'm just I'm so this sorry. Graham's snark, I guess it is.
2: is. This is Graham is channeling through me. I apologize.
0: Listen, are you are I have you gonna be okay?
1: I have to say that even though I'm not familiar with Agatha Christie, I do remember seeing the 1974 movie version.
2: Oh, okay.
0: Of the Murder of Larry, on the Murder? Uh, Murder no Orient Express.
1: Express, which means, and I, I do recall who done it.
0: Okay, so one of the things that we actually should talk about is people have said on Facebook and elsewhere that they either couldn't find the book or didn't want to read it or whatever, and so they've been watching different adaptations of it. And one thing that we, Angelina and I, discovered today in doing some prep for the show, because we do prep for the show, (laughs) believe it or not. Believe it or not.
2: This was intricately scripted two hours ago. Yeah,
0: exactly. Um, uh, we, We discovered through Angelina's use of Wikipedia that the... The 2010 David Suchet version where he plays Poirot actually changes quite a bit from the book. So uh, if you are if you are watching the 2010 version I think the BBC did with David Suchet, then you're not getting the full experience. And
2: they changed the ending. And they so changed
0: the ending, so yeah. maybe watch out for that. Um,
2: it will definitely affect your reading of the
0: yeah, book. Yeah, it, it will, for sure. So be just be aware of that. We're not saying don't do that or don't participate. Obviously, we would love you to listen, even if you can't read the book or whatever. But um, just be aware that it's not the same thing. And um, the new Mover version coming out, it'll be fun to look at what they keep the same and what they change and how they interpret characters and things like that. This is one of my favorite things about talking about movies anyway. Well, so. we
2: already know that they've lost their mind because they cast Michelle Pfeiffer as Mrs. Hubbard.
0: And they turned an Italian into a... Cuban. A
2: Cuban. Yeah. Oh, and then really? a Swede, a Swede into a Spanish.
0: Yeah. Hey, who is a Spanish? woman?
2: Woman. Woman. I was trying to remember. Oh yeah, that's what I looked up.
1: In the movie?
2: Wait, what? Yeah. Say that again.
1: In the contemporary version that's coming out, who is Kenneth Branagh? Branagh. Branagh. Oh, Branagh. Oh, Kenneth
2: Branagh.
0: And Johnny Depp plays Ratchet.
1: Oh, really?
2: Mm-hmm. We got a problem, see?
0: <laughs> and, a problem. and, uh, and then, uh, Daisy Ridley, who people will know probably from Star Wars. Um, She's Ray in Star Wars. She um, plays Mary. So there's a lot of Michelle... Um, Penelope Cruz is in it. Um, Dame, Judy Dench, plays the Russian uh, princess. So just tons of... Um, Gad... Well, anyway, we could talk about the cast all day. We'll yeah. wait until the, the movie comes out. But um, one of the things we want to do here, though, is we've got to give something to give away. So we have a copy... Pretty nice copy. I mean, look at that, Angelina. It's pretty nice. Oh, that's. It's is not nice. like a mass market. It's like no, It's I like a new, that. nice,
2: not snag it.
0: matte cover of uh, Agatha Christie's *The Merger*, Mer- the merger, the merger, the merger of Roger Ackroyd, <laughs> the murder of Roger Ackroyd, which was one of my favorites actually when I was it's, growing it's up. It's a
2: business book, the merger, yes. the merger <laughs> yeah. of Roger Ackroyd.
0: <laughs> it's a cross between um, the other mystery story we read. It's
2: a whodunit CEO novel.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we have a copy of *The Murder of Roger Ackroyd*, and we are going to give this away to one lucky listener so what we're going to do is anybody who has been who is a patron who has contributed any amount to our patreon page and you can learn about that at patreon.com slash close reads um, is going to get a chance to to get this book so we are going to post a question there and the question is going to be this uh it's on our system we're going to trust that you're not wikipedia-ing do w- not wikipedia-ing. google this is it wikipedia-ing or wikipedia um <laughs> Yeah, don't Google it.
2: Shame, shame if you Google this. So,
0: so here's the question: What Edgar Allan Poe story is considered the first mystery, the true detective mystery story? <laughs> And Angelina is like freaking out because yeah, she knows the answer. I
2: totally know it. I didn't have to Google it.
0: <clears throat> so I'm gonna post. I'm gonna post a post there on the Patreon page. In fact,
2: I, sh- I should just have a follow-up question for anybody who gets the answer. I'm just gonna follow up. I'm gonna quiz them to make sure. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so actually, what I'll do is I'll send out a message through Patreon. So if you're contributing, just be on the lookout there. It'll go to your email inbox, but you, c- you need to respond on the Patreon through the Patreon thing. So I'll post the question there on a message to everybody who's on there, and then. We will choose one winner of all the right answers, car talk style, like the car guys. And um, speaking of NPR, and so then we will mail this copy of The Murder of Roger Ackroyd uh, to to one lucky winner. So um, if you have not yet become a patron of our Patreon page, then maybe this is the extra motivation to get you to jump on there and put in your two dollars a month plus you get those sweet bookmarks if you do that um and thanks to everyone who did that because we have been busy this week sending out all of the the rewards all the mugs and the posters and the and all that kind of stuff so thanks thanks so much for your support it, it's a it's been really encouraging to, to hear from people who have written us letters and emails saying you know close reads has meant a lot to me i you know it's helped me learn how to read or just have feel like you have a little bit of community and that definitely makes us i think feel like it's worth jumping on here every week and Speaking at you, (laughs) Um, really. Like I said in the little video, we mostly just thought we were going to talk to each other about books we liked, but it's kind of grown out of something much more than that. So thanks to everyone for your encouraging words, and of course for listening. But let's—we've wasted enough time now. uh, And and
2: yeah, doing Matt Bianco's favorite part of the show.
0: Exactly.
1: Hey, David, can we give a little brief shout out, just following on the heels of all the nice things that you've received from people to Kelly Wynock. I hope I'm saying the last name right. She wrote us a long. Very very thoughtful email. I don't know that she's on the close reads close reads Facebook page, so I just thought it might be worth mentioning. What a nice email that Kelly sent us about the Gilead series.
0: Yeah, thanks to everyone who. I mean, we've been getting more and more emails over the last six months, and it just seems like a big part of it is it's not just it's not just like the three of us talking about books. It's this fact that there seems to be a community that's sprouting up, and yeah. people are building. Even if they're like digital friendships, I mean, they're more than that. They're, even if we don't get to talk in person, um, people are making friends and, you know, just the, 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 the activity of discussing great books, I think is, is the, is, is a, is a uniting, it's a unifying experience. And I think we're seeing that. Um, and it really wasn't necessarily why we created the show, but it's almost like the best benefit of the show at this point, I think in some ways, um, so let's uh, let's talk about The Murder on the Orient Express. You know, one of the things that's interesting about talking about a mystery novel partway through is um, if you know the ending like Angelina does, or like like all oh, the three of us, basically. I think I remember it, but I'm not, I didn't want to look ahead because I wanted to enjoy the experience a little bit. But if you either know it or you think you know it, you constantly want to be like, aha, I see what she did there. So we're going to try to avoid doing that. But she does some amazing things in the first part of this book, getting things set up and getting things going and building the drama and the tension and getting to introduce the characters and things like that. Um, And Angelina, you have done a lot of writing and things like that recently on Mystery Stories. You did the podcast that that you and I did together for Forma uh, a couple weeks ago, and then you also wrote an article for our magazine, and you're working on another piece for the website for next month. And what I want to hear from you is... In what ways do you think that what things do you think Agatha Christie does that she has on display in this first part that really show her mastery of this storytelling form? This is the part that wasn't scripted. I just sprang this question on her.
2: Boy, did you!
0: Um, and so I'm wondering. And Tim, you can jump in here too, as well. But I, um, uh...
2: so the question is, what exactly?
0: Well, what in, you know, in your studies of the mystery stories, what in what ways do you think that Agatha Christie? Is especially gifted, or in what ways has she mastered the form that you see already in the first part of this book?
2: Some of the things, and again, I'll I can't say everything I think about that because I don't want to give away the spoilers. That's fair, yeah,
0: and we're going to talk about that, obviously, in those final Uh, two episodes. But
2: some of the things I can talk about is I was really interested with the fact that she seems to be playing with the form a little bit in this first section, right? So she's working on the expectation that the reader of the detective novel expects certain things, and she's playing with that. Um, uh, For example you know uh, a lot of uh, hercule poirot's lines like so the guy says oh so you're going to rule out you know this suspect and he says oh I, I don't rule out anyone you know everyone's a suspect till it's over that's a yeah, very like dramatic yeah. you know set up kind of line <clears throat> but one of the things that I've talked about a lot in the previous uh Forma podcast and in that article is about that when you read a detective story, you are actively reading and you are looking for clues and and you know that everything has meaning. Everything's potentially meaningful and can be the little thing that un- unravels the whole mystery. And she seemed like in this part 1 that she was she was playing with that a little bit hmm. in the fact that there's too many clues right? Like it's exaggerated. Everything's a clue. So that that's a clue. It's a clue that everything's a clue. (laughs) There are too many clues. And that's also a clue, Um, which I just found that really amusing and clever and interesting that he keeps drawing attention to the clues. And, uh, and, and he goes on and on about, you know, there are too many clues. And that's probably a clue. And the guy says, I don't understand what you mean. And he says, I don't understand what I mean either. (laughs) (laughs) I don't understand anything. He says, and that worries me. Yeah. So she's she's just seems like she's playing with a lot of the things.
0: One of the things I like about what you're saying there is that one of the things I think is interesting is that um, the tension there so is is there's is in our crime is in the mystery, but it's also in trying to understand the characters, which is why I think Poirot is so interesting as a character. Is he's so consumed and interested in psychology and, and he, he comes right out and he says, says it. that
2: yeah. yeah it's the psychology that interests me not the fingerprints yeah and i loved that so much because i thought you know that that says why it is that i never really connected with those csi shows those more procedural yeah. detective shows because they don't get into the psychology of the killer at all it's, it's not a puzzle to solve
1: it's, those are yeah about fingerprints
2: yes yeah. it's all about physical evidence and that's you know they even say that where does the evidence lead it's it's for, but he's not interested in that in fact, I, and again, pointing, he's, he's really being self-reflective about the fact that this is a detective story, which I really am finding so amusing. So he he walks into the room and says, I do not expect we will find any fingerprints. And if we did, they would only be the fingerprints of the people we would expect in this room because he says, killers don't leave fingerprints these days. No one makes that mistake these days. You know, it, it just yeah. He's drawing all this attention to it, which I just found so entertaining and <laughs> amusing. And she's... She and he both are just setting up this puzzle, and she's telling us this puzzle is not going to be solved in the typical way. Like, I think there's all these indications that this is not going to follow the form. She's playing mm-hmm. with the form.
0: Yeah. Like, the the things that you would expect.
2: Yes. Yeah, she's, she's playing kind of subverting on our, it. She's subverting our expectations. Yes. Or even their whole... Early conversation, all the contra- the evidence is all contradictory, right? How does he say it? We have a strong man, we have a weak woman. We have a right-hander, we have a left-hander. He said something like it's the classic Shakespeare dilemma or something like that. So, it, uh, yeah, the fact that he's confused, it's confusing. He, what he doesn't expect to find, what he does expect to find, that there's too much of what one would expect to find. Yeah. You know. He says it's, this is too much to be a coincidence. It has to be planted evidence, essentially, because it's, it's too much to think that you, you know, the, how did he put it, that the, that the male suspect would accidentally leave something, no, would intentionally leave a handkerchief to make you think it's a woman, and then the woman yeah. suspect would intentionally leave this to make you... Know,
0: or that you have two people and they both would accidentally drop a clue.
2: Yeah, right. Yeah. It, that something seems too contrived about it to him.
0: Yeah. Tim, what do you make of, uh, as someone who's not read... Uh, much Agatha Christie at all and who has only met this character um, through the play, I suppose. What do you make of this, this, the character, like the literary character of Herc- Hercule Poirot so far? Yeah. And you're going to have to pardon my bungling of French, French, <laughs> turning, I'm French words I'm this, this whole show. Up, yeah.
1: I am so glad they were are talking about this because this is one of the things that um, I wanted to talk about today. I, I remember the movie version of the play of the play of the novel was played by albert finney who's this wonderful 70s actor and the way that he played it and the way that i kind of imagine it are really different for some reason i imagine hercule Poirot is being um almost dainty in his manners um, oh he
2: is he says he's a dandy she calls him a dandy he's totally dandified he's, he's a total dandified. dandy
1: the way that albert finney plays him in the 74 movie which i love the way that he played him is so boisterous and and not not bungling but he is a like a force of nature and his albert finney's voice is just huge and he kind of yeah. his voice is also kind of um Flat, almost kind of monotone, which sounds like the antithesis of the way that I'm reading Hercule Perrault. But it worked. In the movie, it works so well. And I wonder if that's part of the reason why Poirot is such a compelling character. I wonder if it's because uh, you can read him a few different ways. Obviously, Angelina and I just read him that certain way that he's, he's a dandy, because he says he's a dandy. So I imagine him as being... Somewhat delicate. Well,
2: the details suggest it, too, though. His, his vanity about his mustache, you know. And the, he's
0: got a special tool he's for He's got it.
2: curling irons in <laughs> to curl his mustache. I mean, he's, he's vain. But, and he's okay. very fastidious Vayne, about his appearance.
1: Does vain mean delicate and um, retiring, though? Is he a wilting lily?
2: Oh. Well, no, I don't know that I would think of him as a, as a wilting lily. Hmm. But, a, a, you know, it's a little bit like Lord Peter Whimsey that, you know, or, or the Scarlet Pimpernel, a, a dandy can be disarming.
0: I was actually going to say, let's, let's compare him to our previous detective friend. Uh, we'll have to do, like, Sherlock Holmes or something one day, too, and do the triumvirate. Um, but how do you, how is he similar and how is he different to Lord Peter?
2: Well, I'll tell you one way he's different is that he takes himself very seriously, and Lord Peter does not. Poirot does. Poirot does, yes. Lord Peter makes, makes fun of himself all the time. That's part of his disarmingness is he seems like, he seems like an idiot. And he's bird, he, he, goes, he does this over-the-top Bertie Wooster routine. And mm. In so, fact, Hercule Poirot goes the other way. Uh, you know, he's, perhaps you've heard of me? Yeah. Oh, oh you haven't heard of me? Like, you know, and he's, he's
0: Are you hiding. sure? Are but you are sure? Are you
2: sure you haven't heard of me yet?
0: So, okay, let me ask this then. From the perspective of the author, the relationship between the author and the audience, as opposed to the character and the audience, are we supposed to view um, are we supposed to take Poro as seriously as he takes him? Or are we supposed to view that as a character flaw that we can kind of chuckle and laugh at? Either. I don't know how either of you think about that. And and I will say that the more books you read, the more your perspective might change on this.
2: Well, yeah, I think we're supposed to take him seriously. I think, I mean... So
0: Agatha Christie takes him as seriously as he takes himself?
2: Well, in terms of his ability as a detective, like he can't, he hasn't met the case that he can't unravel. This is one of his things. He's extremely confident that he can solve anything. And so even the way she sets up, which was very interesting that she sets up this story with him trying to go on vacation after solving a very difficult... Complicated, mysterious case and
0: then he gets called back to another case and then he rejects a case, and yep it, th- there's demand for him
2: yes, so yes, exactly and it's international demand, yeah, and he's retired.
0: he's an international man of mystery,
2: he is, and so I think <laughs> she's setting this up as he's got this incredible reputation, and everybody all over the world is trying to get him his help on these extremely difficult cases, um, and then he even refuses the case he says, right, I only take cases that interest me, yeah right yeah. Uh, Which that I mean, that says something about his his uh, reputation and where he is professionally. You know, he doesn't need the money, and he's like, "Well, I just take cases that interest me." Mm -hmm. Which now that I'm saying that, I'm having echoes of some other modern character that says the same kind of thing. I can't think of who it is. Maybe it'll come to me later. But there's a modern character that says the same kind of thing. You know, it's only if I find this interesting, only if I'm personally intrigued, Hmm. because it's a puzzle. Sherlock Holmes, I think. Sherlock Holmes Holmes talks about that. so yeah, I think we're supposed to see him as having this tremendous reputation and it's and it's well deserved. And that's why it's so I mean, she's she's clearly setting this up as s- whoever is the, is the murderer has, has just had a terrible sense of timing that he just happened and again this fits in with a lot of what i say about detective stories that nothing is random and there's always a sense of providence and it's a lot of detective stories have that Scooby-Doo moment of and i would have gotten away with it too if I hadn't been for you kids you know yeah. there's a lot of that and but <laughs> it goes toward it's not a random it's not a random universe
0: hmm. tim what is your what is your perspective on poro
1: um I like him. I like the fact that he's confident. I don't think it's a character flaw. I agree with Angelina. And I think his expertise is part of what makes the book so pleasurable to read, is because we do have this sense that Paul Rowe's going to figure it out. We're going to try to be as smart as him and figure it out with him.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask what is the effect for the reader experiencing a mystery story like this and trying to put the puzzle together? What is the effect? on us when the, when, when the, when the detective, when our, when our eyes are, are so capable. Yeah. Does it, does it almost make it seem easy? Does it lose the drama or is it still there?
2: Well, I think she's building it by having it right from the beginning. This is something that's confused him and is stumping him. Hmm. Which, which I think it increases our interest of how is he going to figure this? Even the great Hercule Poirot is, uh, stumped. Hmm.
1: Do you guys remember, did you ever read um, the Encyclopedia Brown stories when you were, like, yes. in high school? I
0: thought you were going to ask if I ever read the Encyclopedia.
2: <laughs> I'm glad to know something in your history is, you know, legitimate. So, okay, yes, Encyclopedia Brown.
1: When I wasn't remem- when I wasn't reading <laughs> Proust, I was reading Encyclopedia Brown. And,
2: what, I mean, I love a renaissance man you are.
1: A little renaissance man. The Encyclopedia Brown stories were so compelling because you really could figure it out. You know, there was oh, always yeah. one clue that if you just paid close enough attention, you would realize that the criminal or the wrongdoer had sort of slipped up. And Encyclopedia yeah. Brown, when he revealed it, oh, it was so satisfying. Mm-hmm. And you were like, oh, I could have figured it out if I just recognized that it was a digital clock instead of a manual clock, whatever. Um, And Obviously, this is a great deal more complicated and complex, but I do have the feeling that if we pay close enough attention, maybe we can figure it out also. We can make a really good guess and be as smart as Hercule Perrault.
0: Yeah, one of the things that, that I think is great about a mystery story is the way it teaches you or kind of demands of you that you pay attention. So Angelina and I were talking... All kind of as a as an aside in the podcast that we did over on forma about mystery stories, we were talking about how mystery stories can help you become a better reader um, or you you know it's a great way to help teach students learn how to read closely um, and I know Cindy Rollins has said before and i don 't know if she said this to me personally or on a show or something but she i've heard her say that when she feels like maybe she's not in a good reading habit or she's gotten out of the habit or just needs to reboot her reading habit. She'll pick up a mystery novel because it helps her get into the flow and the rhythm of reading, but also just you learn, you have to learn to look for things and you have to pay attention and you can't, I mean, you could just read to the end just to find out who did it, but that's not, that's not the point of a mystery story. The part of it is the experience and putting it all together and learning to make observations and, and, uh, be read carefully. Um, and that's one of the things I love about mystery stories is it just kind of demands that of you. That's why I think it's great for young people. I mean, yeah, I, I read a ton of... I mean, I read it, like I said, in middle school, I probably read every Poirot novel. I read the Hardy Boys as an you know, uh, old elementary school kid. I read tons of those. And I think it really did help me cultivate something, at least, of a, reading, of a habit of reading.
2: I completely agree with that. But that's one of the things that I kept thinking about after our, our talk. Because you asked me the question of, does it teach kids how to read? And I had never thought of it like that before. But... I'm 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 willing to believe that all of the Nancy Drews and all of the Boxcar Children and Agatha Christie everything I read as a kid it, I'm sure that it made me a much closer reader than it would have otherwise. Hmm. It just it demands it of you. It's in it's implicit in the form. Hmm. Like no one has it's to you know push it on to it's not impo- you don't impose it on the book. It, it it asks it of you.
1: You know you know what else I think is great about it is it there's a right if you read it closely, then there's kind of the satisfaction that you have read it right.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, a lot. Of, oh
2: yes, I love that. Takes know, it out of the whole subjective realm, absolutely, right?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, close reads. We are bumping up against that all the time because the the works that we're reading are so complex that all three of us probably enter knowing. There's no right reading. There's better reading and there's deeper reading. But I think for a young person, before you can get to that place where you can just say, there's not a singular right reading. There's just, I can give a reading that shows the full depth of this classic. To get to that place, I think reading mysteries are tremendously helpful because it's so satisfying to If you get to the end of the story and you've read it well to have that good reading pay off in a right reading. You solve the murder, you know?
0: Yeah.
2: No, absolutely. Well,
0: it's like we teach with young kids. We read fairy tales to them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's especially good for kids. Mystery stories are especially good for kids as they're learning to read themselves. Like, you know, I might read aloud a more difficult book to my kids at a younger age than they would be able to read to themselves. But when they're learning to read for themselves mystery stories, especially the ones that are age appropriate or, you know, child appropriate, depending on the personality and of each individual child like that, that's especially good for them as they're trying to, as they're learning the habits of good reading
2: mm-hmm.
0: in, in terms of like reading for themselves, not necessarily reading as a family or in the classroom or something like that. Yeah.
2: And, I th- you know, one of the other things we like to teach, all of us have taught literature, we all want to teach our students how to be active readers and read with a pencil in hand, right? And learn how to mark what's important. And I think that, I think that... Yeah, um, if you're
0: one of those people who tells your kids not to write in books, then...
2: Yeah, no, then...
0: You, we are not friends. Yeah,
2: no. Uh, <laughs> exactly. I might report you to social service if that's a form of abuse. <laughs> all of my... We have multiple copies of everything in my house. Everybody's got their own book.
0: Do um, you also not give your children eggs and milk? And sustenance.
2: <laughs> exactly. In exactly. what other way are you abusing your yeah. child? That's going to be my response <laughs> when someone <laughs>
0: your children not have blankets in the winter. <laughs>
2: <laughs> shoes. What's the shoes and socks situation <laughs> at your house? <laughs> but I think that detective stories also um, also demand that sort of active reading because one of the things that you have to learn. Okay, so let me start not as an adult reader, as a child reader. A child reader reading a detective story is going to get to something and pause and say, what does that mean? That seemed like that was really important, but I don't know what it means. I'm mm. going to note that to myself, and I'm going to keep reading until I figure out why this was important. Well, that's what we do every week on the show, right? But not about detective clues that a recurring motif or an image or a theme starts to develop and we say, okay, where's, where's she going with this? She's, she's said this a couple of times. So this, is, yeah. this is all things you learn to do in a detective story, right? That you're learning to ask the question, this seems important, what does this mean?
0: Yeah. And, and I, one of the things I like about it is it's okay to ask that question of things that may not end up being a true puzzle piece.
2: Yes. Because yeah.
0: it's still opening the world of that book up to you. You're still learning about the characters. You're still thinking through questions. You're still, um, you're still asking whether something's important. And if you ask whether the smoking gun is important, um, even if it's not, then you're still learning to ask an important question as a reader. Um, and when you read Anna Karenina or you read charles dickens or you read jane austen or shakespeare those questions are still relevant you just made a you made a a silent exclamation no, angelina
2: i keep hitting the microphone with my face oh
0: i thought you were like either agreeing or disagreeing i'm or like
2: something. leaning in and it's bonk every time i'm sorry for whoever's editing this those, uh, those weird noises that's me hitting my head on the microphone i
0: couldn't tell if you were agreeing or disagreeing it turns no, out you're I, just clumsy yes exactly
2: <laughs> but i but I, but I am agreeing, and I think that's one of the things that Agatha Christie is drawing our attention to when she has Poirot say there's too many clues. Yeah. Yeah. Because now what's happening is you have to learn to read closely and notice things, but you also now, there's another layer, you have to have discernment. Mm. Every, if everything seems important, then that can't be right.
0: Right. Yeah. Poirot is a good detective. Sherlock Holmes is a good detective, yeah. Lord Peter Whimsier is a good detective because of his ability to discern.
2: Yes. They notice and they discern.
0: And, and I said this this morning when you and I were talking, Angelina, um, and so I'll share this with Tim. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Sorry, Tim. Tim. Well, one of the things is that
0: when you, any, the way we all learn things, right, is we start by like, we start on a rudimentary level. We, we gather information, so to speak, right? Whether it's the, what the number two means or we learn dates in history or whatever. So it doesn't matter what the subject is. We learn by at least often we learn by gathering information first. And then we learn what that means. So we start, dis- we, start, we start discerning what that means within the grander picture of the universe, right? Like, what does it mean? First, we learn that William of, Conquer, William of Normandy conquered in 1066. And yep. then you start learning what that means. And then you start, turn- you start m- taking that meaning and you start extrapolating that more broadly. I mean, I guess roughly that's the trivium, right? But, if we want to narrow that down too narrowly, but it's the same thing here, right? We learn... We learn to make observations, we learn, we gather information, and then we start discerning what that means, and then we start applying them more broadly. So in a, in a way, the form of a mystery novel, the form of that experience applies more broadly to all the learning that we do.
2: That, that's absolutely true. And you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking about this idea that you know, if everything's important, then that's not right, right? N- not everything can be important. It makes me think of the kid who's first learning how to highlight the textbook, and they literally highlight every sentence, right? <laughs> in the chapter, you're like, okay, I, you're, you're doing this wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Not yeah. everything is important. But, and, and of course, if you, ha- if you teach children, you actually know that that is an obstacle kids have, right? Because you have the two kind of summarizer kid, the, the one who gives you the two words and you can't get anything. What else happened? Well, no, I summed it up. You know, boy ran. That was the chapter. You know, that's all yeah. you're going to get. At. But the other kid is going to talk for 42 minutes about a two-page something that they read because everything's important. Yeah. And, and the sweet spot is somewhere in between that. So so one kid has to learn to, to see more and the other one has to learn to discern more. Uh, so it's all doing that. But one of the other ways that I think she's playing with the form is, is the setting. Hmm. So I, what I said in, in the... Um, the mystery article that I wrote for Forma and we talked about it on the Forma podcast is that one of the things that happens in, in a detective story is you have a makeshift community. Sometimes it's a real community like it's a family but more often than not it's a makeshift community especially with Agatha Christie it can be like a vacation lodge or
0: And then there were none they're on the island. Yeah, they're on an
2: island. In this case it's a it's a, it's a train, right? So you have a makeshift community. And then when the crime happens, the community is disrupted, right? Everyone becomes a suspect and you don't know who you can trust. And so the relationships break apart. And then the movement is toward the restoration of order and justice and the restoration of the community. So you should always expect to see all of that at the end of a detective story. The community restored, a justice served, uh, and there's some kind of redemption. But she's so interestingly playing with this because she's got them trapped, <laughs> She's got yeah. them trapped on this on this train, right? And so the murderer has to be someone on the train. It has to. So, so this is all intensified. I mean, when you're in a vacation lodge, it could be someone who wasn't there, who snuck in in the night and committed the crime and left. It doesn't really have to be a resident of the lodge. But in this case, they've, they've looked around. There's no footprints. There's no way in or out. It has to be someone in the train. So that intensifies this whole everybody's a suspect thing, which, by the way, the taglines for the movie is everyone is a suspect, clues are everywhere. And I was so excited about that because is basically the two points I made in my article. <laughs> so I was like, yes, yeah, yeah. you guys get it, or I get it, or we both don't get it, but at least, at least we agree with each other. And so I loved how, in part one, twice, Hercule Poirot makes a comment about this is a community. He actually uses that word and says twice, this is a hmm. community of people who were brought together on this train, and now we are together. And he spends a lot of time talking about how uncomfortable they are at first, and there's an awkwardness, and they're strangers. But the more that they spend time together in this forced community, barriers start to fall down, and you see people sort of pairing up and having conversations. And he, he's, just, he's noticing all of that. And, and she just seems to me like she's drawing attention so much to the form. Mm-hmm. And, and doing interesting things with it. So everything's ramped up. Too many clues, that's ramped up. Um, and then the fact that the setting is so intensely isolated. So she's taking
0: these tropes and just pushing them up to 11?
2: Yes, I was just going to say that. She's <laughs> pushing them up to 11, <laughs> which to me, again, suggests not just a knowledge of the form, but that she's intentionally playing with the form. She's drawing attention to the form, and she's going to do something mm-hmm. with it. Which that's what a master does. That's what a master does. I mean, Shakespeare doesn't always follow the form of his plays. He messes with them. And when he does, it's because he's drawing your attention to, I know what I'm doing and I'm messing with this to, to make a point.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Tim. David. It's your turn to talk. <laughs> it's your turn. Anthony <laughs> and I just had a mini conversation. I'm while sorry, you. sorry.
2: I'm really excited
0: about
2: this. <laughs> 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 I've got so no, many highlighted she, passages.
0: <laughs> I th- it's great, but I don't want you to feel left out over there in Wyoming, Tim. <laughs>
2: I'm going to be quiet now. Go ahead, Tim.
0: I, one of the
1: things that I like about Perot already is that we mentioned it earlier, he's most interested in human psychology more than the fingerprints. And hmm. he reminds me a little bit of um, uh, the detective in uh, Crime and Punishment.
0: Porfiry. I had a feeling you were going to say that. Did uh, you really? Okay. Yeah, go on. No, Tell I us hear this. More. Tell me more. Well, Porfiry
1: Petrovich knows. Okay, so. Listeners, if you want, if you've not read *Crime and
0: Punishment*,
2: spoiler for *Crime and Punishment* it's like, coming. It's
0: like four hundred years old. Yeah, David
2: has a strict rule that there's no such thing as spoiling a classic. So, <laughs> but
0: also, mean... if you, if you won't read a book because you know something about a character in it that's like world renowned for four hundred years, then that's a you problem, not a book problem.
2: Wait, Romeo and Juliet die at the end? I'm out.
0: What? <laughs>
1: And in fairness, the murder, the crime in Crime and Punishment happens pretty early. so <laughs> yeah, True. It's like right away. <laughs> As one would expect. Yeah. The detective knows, he knows Raskolnikov has committed the murder. He has no doubts. The trouble is he has no clues. He can't pin it. He has some clues. That's an exaggeration. But he cannot pin the murder on Raskolnikov. And so what does he do? All he does is just invite... Raskolnikov to confess because what Porfiry Petrovich thinks is, I know the human conscience so well, I know that his conscience will bite him, and I'm just going to clear a path for Raskolnikov's conscience to get to him. And that's all he does. And so his detective work, Porfiry Petrovich's detective work, is so playful and it demonstrates the lightest touch because he knows he's got his man and he's just kind of setting him up so that he can walk through the gates of the police office and confess that he did it and I I don't sense that that's what um, Hercule Perrault is going to do but he does seem to its motives that's what he's oh, he most interested in.
2: Oh yeah, I was just going to say yeah, it's got to it's got to make sense to him. He's always asking the question of why would someone do this so that he can then figure out who would do it.
0: Hmm. Yeah. One thing I like about that though is that could also take you the wrong direction. It's like if you are not very good at people understanding people's psychology oh, yeah. right. or if you read someone the wrong way, then you could overlook something. And so there is a tension too within him within Himself or within us as the reader to to properly not just observe the clues but properly interpret people's own actions and their own words. And,
2: sh- and, and Agatha Christie is already setting up the idea of deception with the multiple clues. He's already saying, someone's trying to plant false evidence, someone's trying to deceive me.
0: Well, and he and the um, who, who is it that the doctor says to him or, or Book? How do you say that? B O U C B O U B U O C that character. No, do I don't that? know. Book, yeah,
2: Book. Let's um, go with Book.
0: So, so he says. He's one of the characters says to him, so we can rule out the right. queen then. And he says, oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't d- rule. Anyone. I don't rule anybody out until the end, until the end. And so he's, he thinks he knows this character, but that doesn't mean he's ready to, to make a final decision on what that character is capable of doing.
2: Yeah, and that's part of discernment, right? Not being quick to make judgments with waiting to get all the information.
0: Which is, again, that's another thing, great thing, you know, the old don't judge a book by its cover, mm-hmm. which I actually think you probably can because book cover design is important. I but also
2: feel the same way.
0: You can, you can at least judge a, pub- a publisher by a cover, right? But you don't want, you know, a lot of people will judge a book by the early portions of it to get it when you're still gathering information. Yeah. Mm. And that that's another, that's not a good way to read, you know, if you're in a, I mean, I do it all the time, honestly. But some once you've learned how to discern things about books, you can judge the quality of a book earlier than someone who's new, who's learning how to do that still. Um, So I'm not saying that's not the you can't do that at all. But I don't know why I got off on that tangent. I I
2: don't know either. But you know, now that I've started thinking, (laughs) now that I keep saying she's playing with the form, all this stuff is jumping out at me. She's also playing with the form. This is a twist too. The victim of the murder goes to try to hire. The detective—that's a twist. Huh. That's a twist on the form. He's yeah. also not likable, right? He's not likable, and uh, but you're
0: not necessarily like
2: you're not. Nobody's sad. In fact, you you expect that this is gonna like you're reading a detective story. You know, someone's—it's called murder. Like you know, yeah. someone's gonna die, and he's pretty much clearly identified himself as he's going to be the victim.
0: Tim, do you feel like it's weird that we're not because we know enough about the victim? Like Poirot clearly didn't like him. He's very rougher on the edges, to say the least. And then we learn more about him. And his involvement in this other, right, previous murder. Do you think that there is something that the novel has a different effect because we're not sitting here like bring justice to this? Yeah, right. Oh, this right. Person who died. Exactly. It's more like, well, justice has been brought. So
2: it finally caught up with him. Huh? Yeah.
0: So it, yeah, it exactly. He
2: had been running from he, justice all yeah, this time.
0: Exactly. He got what was coming to him. Um, does that have a different effect on how you feel about? the solving of this crime
2: yeah i
1: it does i was thinking about um what what's the detective that we like so much Slade not sam slade um sam spade sam spade yeah those, um, the hard-boiled stuff yeah it, the, like, the noir when the, when the Chandler. blonde walks into the office <laughs> yeah big sleep you you kind of you know you kind of fall in love with her a little bit and it makes you want to discover, you know, what's gone wrong and, you know, is she having a facade? It, it it heightens the sense of justice. So I'm curious to know what Agatha Christie's gonna do here because he's such an unlikable guy. He was unlikable before we found out his background, and then we find out his background and he's positively ooh, he's he's monstrous. Yeah, he's a monster.
0: So Even the yeah, name, right? And,
2: and she's really intentionally not creating sympathy for this character. Yeah, yeah. Um, in, in particular, in particular the, the detail that after they view the body, they walk into the dining car, and she says, no one was hungry, and they ate all their food. <laughs> <laughs> and she puts that together. Like, they just got over that, well, we're moving on. Yeah. You know, No one's crying about this guy.
0: Yeah, that's a great point.
2: And the detective feels no sense of responsibility.
0: Hey, Tim. Hey. Did you notice that bit of close reading there by Angelina? <laughs> well done. Well done. You know what else, though? Even his name, right? Ratchet. Ratchet. No, you right. Like, like, what kind
2: of racket is he running? Yeah, it's, yeah. Like, it's just
0: kind of like a guttural, like... Yeah. Uh, I mean, I would say masculine, but I mean that, like, in the wrong... The bad sense, right? There's like it's this masculine, harsh word. Yeah. There's, like, onomatopoeia about, about it, right? In terms of... I mean, I'm stretching the definition of that word that no one knows how to spell but um (laughs) he sounds like an iron tool is what he sounds like you know (laughs) yeah yeah um no
2: and all the descriptions of his evil eye and he you know there's just like a feeling of evil almost like an animal
1: if guys being too personal i do not like your
2: face
0: (laughs) (laughs) what do you guys make of the, the chapters before they even get on the train? Because there's, what, two, three chapters where he's, they're in train stations that are on a different train, and he's there with Mary, is it Denbaum?
2: Uh, Debenham.
0: Debenham and um, the other. I, I sh- Arbuthnot. And Arbuthnot, yeah. Um, who seem to have a connection, maybe or maybe not, and we're not really sure. And so there's this whole entirely other mystery
2: mm-hmm.
0: that that we're being drawn into before we ever get on the train and our attentions are diverted. So, Tim, what do you make of of that setup that, that uh, Agatha Christie... I almost just said that Angelina's drawing... That Agatha Christie...
2: Yes, when I wrote this book, what was I thinking? Go, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. She's
1: got a massive... I mean, a lot of it... Let's be honest. Is she's building a house, you know? And she has a lot of girders that she needs to put up. She has a huge cast of characters. We she need really to know does. All it is you.
2: a huge, it is a huge cast. If she wastes
1: any time introducing characters, you know, then the, she's got, she's got a, a mountain on her back that she's not going to be able to throw off. So yeah. part of it, I think is just the tactical. Um, she's, she's not introducing everyone on the plane. She's on the train. She's introducing some people before they arrive. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a shallow answer, but I think it's
0: to be yeah, yeah. an answer. Yeah.
2: Do I get a turn? Can I answer? Go, yeah, please. Um, I think she's doing a lot of really interesting things. One, we've already said that uh, she's setting up that Hercule Poirot has just come from a successful case. So we know something about him, that he's a man who can unravel difficult mysteries. We also know about him because he's basically eavesdropping on these people's conversations, just random people. He's not in a case. So we know something about him, that he's got powers of observation he's always all the time even when he's not on the clock noticing things right so we know that about him and then she's also introducing a mysterious conversation between these two characters which i mean we can expect in a detective story the 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 you know the light of suspicion will be on everyone by the time this is over because that's that's what you do right um but then also the sense of providence if i can use that word right like he wasn't supposed to be on that train, but he gets called back, and now mm. he's in the middle of this, of this case, which is something, it's a motif you see in a lot of detective stories. They just happen to be at the right place at the right time. I mean, sometimes people come to them and try to hire them, but, but it's always very interesting when they sort of stumble on it, because you think those are very often the, the perfect crime cases, and oh, if only he hadn't have been on the train, they would have, they would have gotten away with it. So I find all of that really, really interesting. And I also want to say this because I, I looked it up when I was reading it, and we got to the Armstrong kidnapping case, I thought, "Oh, this has got to be based on the Lindbergh kidnapping mm-hmm. and sure enough, I looked it up, and it was so it was uh that happened the year before she wrote it, uh, so she wrote it in thirty three it was published in january of thirty four and the kidnapping was in thirty two and If our listeners don't know this is this was the the crime of the century, mm-hmm. so this was a huge sensational thing and and it's really clever that she uses it in the story. everyone, everyone would have known this case. Um, there would have been a lot of sympathy, public sympathy, amongst the readers ab- about referencing this case, because this was Charles Lindbergh, the the pilot. Um, his, his baby, his 20-month-old baby, was kidnapped. And um, just like in the story, when they paid the ransom, they found the body. And uh, a maid was accused, and she committed suicide and was later exonerated, and it was a big a big case and i mean there's still a bazillion books written all the time with conspiracy theories of they got the wrong guy and it's just a case that really captured the public imagination and still does all this all these years later hmm. so tapping into that making this be potentially the motive because our our victim is related to this case uh would, would that would just ramp up the audience interest big time
0: plus it puts you in the shoes if you're simp- if you're sympathizing with the Armstrong- With the family, Mm -hmm. the Lindbergh family. then it puts you almost in the shoes of sympathizing, or at least having to question whether or not, where your sympathies lie as far as the murderer goes.
2: Right, and that supports our reading of Ratchet. He's such an unlikable character. No one's sorry that he's dead.
0: Right, and in the end, I mean, mean, we got into this a little bit in the Lord Peter, Mm -hmm. Murder Must Advertise, there's, you know, you have to ask yourself how you feel about the idea or how, what the idea of justice really I was really going to say,
2: she might be raising the question of what is justice, because already, just in part one, if we don't know anything else, we know that the man who died was bad, he had gotten away with the crime, and he was running from it. Mm-hmm. So there's already a sense of, ooh, is his death, is that is that just? Did, yeah. he, did he get what was coming to him? She's, be, she's already raising some questions like can that. Can his
0: death, his murder be just, but then... Also, it'd be just that the person who murdered him get what's coming to them, too?
2: Right. No, exactly. Can both
0: of those things be true at the same time? Um,
2: She's setting up something complicated Which is
0: why a book like this lasts, right? Yes. Because it's not... If it's got
2: a moral dilemma.
0: It's not just about who killed this guy and, like, this adventure on a train, but there's something much deeper going on there, and there's, like... Higher level ideas that, that are that's forcing you to consider and something that's very entertaining.
2: Yeah, and, and this goes back to our reading of of Detective Poirot, right? That he's interested in the why. Why would someone do yes.
0: this? Which yeah, brings it, up the yeah, question it mirrors of justice. his own psychology. Yeah yeah. yeah,
2: yeah.
1: Do you guys think that um, it seems like Poirot is being put in the position where he is both detective and judge? Um. Hmm.
0: And I I wonder
1: if that is not the case with something like Sherlock Holmes stories or Sam Slade stories. Like what do you mean?
2: Meaning, I can think of without giving anything away. I can think of one Sherlock Holmes story that has a similar similar twist where you're not sure what the just thing to do is.
0: Yeah. Which one?
2: I can't think of the name of it, but it's about a woman and and. She, she tells him, ah, I can't think of it. I
0: mean, there's so many of those.
2: I know. But well, that really narrowed it down. Sherlock yeah. like Holmes and a woman and she tells him <laughs> something. Now that y'all know exactly what the story I'm talking about. <laughs> so, so
1: we so know awful. it's
0: not the novel. When
1: detective stories end, of course, there's no trial included in the story. We know that justice has been done when the facts are laid out, when the accusation has been made. The police will show up and put somebody in cuffs sometimes. But... The judge never shows up.
2: No, in a that's true.
1: Story, and so I think I wonder if that's <laughs> part of the reason why Poirot is so that having a detective whose primary pre- preoccupation is human psychology and motives, it makes the figure of the detective. It gives him two sides. He's not just the one who finds the facts and draws the conclusion. But he's also the one that kind of tacitly is the judge over the soul.
2: Oh, because of his interest in why. Yeah, that is interesting. And, and Sam I, Slade,
0: that's really interesting. The idea of the judge over the soul is interesting because what if he gets it wrong? Yeah, right. What if he condemns the wrong person?
2: But that is, I think, I, I think you're absolutely right, Tim, and I do think that's what sets these books apart from the procedural dramas that I don't yeah. like so much because it just makes everything so clinical, and they, it, why someone did it is irrelevant if they have the evidence to prove it. They, yeah. they don't even ask the well, okay. question of motive anymore.
0: Tim, Tim you were going to say, whereas in the same Spade novels, and I want to hear your oh, yeah, finish that thought because I might want to disagree with you.
1: Well, it seems to me like when Sam Slade solves... Spade. Spade, sorry. When he yeah. solves um, a murder, it's more like the murder – it, it seems like the murder is one of a hundred tokens of darkness out there in the world. And all the, all the clues aligned on this particular criminal. And so he's going to go to jail – but I, it doesn't feel like the world has been set right, whereas with a Perot detective, mm, it, it does feel like something has been set right, because what's fundamentally, the problem is fundamentally kind of like a, a disordered affections. It's a problem of the spirit No, of that's the world. true.
2: I think that in the hard boil, because I did read that Raymond Chandler thing that I told you oh, about yeah, this yeah. morning, um, I... I Raymond Chandler, Raymond Chandler hated the cl- uh, classic detective novel. And, yeah, and, and this one
0: in particular. Yeah,
2: this one in particular, and did not like Agatha Christie and Dorothy Sayers and all that. And he just thought it was too tidy, too neat, and not real. Um, as he said, the hard-boiled detective novel was giving murder back to the people who actually commit murders instead of just providing corpses. So he thought that they were too formulaic. So he... In his conception of the world, when the crime is solved, that would not necessarily put the world back to rights, right? The world is too messy in his mind for it to be quickly remedied. And there's some truth to that, and I'm not saying that that means there's nothing good to see in those books, but it's just a different approach.
0: Well, you know what's interesting is, so Lord Peter, Sherlock Holmes, um, and Agatha Christie are all from where? England and they're all fairly upper class.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. These are definitely is, hobby detectivists. And there yeah, is detectives. S- they're t- detectivists. <laughs> I'm making up a new word.
0: But the, as authors in general, they're they come from a highly ordered society. Yeah. Whereas if you look at a, a Raymond Chandler, this is, he's an American. There's a Wild West about.
2: I was just thinking, there's about, a Wild West aspect to yeah. a hardboiled detective. The world.
0: hardboiled detective, in my opinion, is the follow up to the traditional western story
2: I completely buy that I was um, actually just thinking the same thing
0: and um, it, 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 that, that sense of well, wild west doesn't in my opinion and I'm not an expert on this by any means but does not in my reading anyway show up in e- English fiction mystery fiction until you get into the cold war after world war II. interesting and you begin to see it in, in like John le Carré and um, in, in, in then mostly in spy novels. And becomes much more international. And it becomes about, you know, it becomes about the future of peace, essentially. Like the future of the world. And mm-hmm. the, so you're, it, the, the sense of fear about what the world is becoming begins to permeate things. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why so many, there's so many incredibly mystery novels. And even in, in early espionage with um, Eric Ambler. uh uh John Buchan. John Buchan. Um, mom like Eric Ambler, was you know maybe the greatest early spy novelist of all time he inspired all of the, the later ones there they feel like there's a sense of order happening at the end much more than say the spy who came in from the cold which is probably it's one of my favorite novels of all time and I'm rereading it right now for like the manyth time the manyth is another word that was getting made up on the show we're
2: just shakespeare in <laughs> it We're shakespeare in it
0: <laughs> but you know that that they come from a, so in short they come from a time period these you know mm-hmm. agatha christie comes from a period where order is both fading away but also still very important yes And so the stories cling to that notion that there is such a thing as order. Do
2: you think that it also speaks to the cultural mythos? So as as you're talking, I'm thinking, so America is a country that was founded on chaos, a revolution, and everything since then has been an attempt to establish order over that chaos. That is not english history where they are i mean yes if you go but back the far is, enough
0: americans value that mythos too. they do like the idea the, of the, west the wild west is something that there's no more the quintessential unconquerable
2: american. american spirit there's right. that, you know there's a wild marlboro man inside of every american man uh, presumably according to advertisers but uh,
0: <laughs> well i know there's definitely one in me and tim
2: <laughs> definitely oh, um, obviously i mean i think tim's the model for the tim's marlboro like man. <laughs> he's
0: in wyoming right now just doing marlboro man stuff
2: i'm pretty sure they're resurrecting those ads right now
0: that's true right tim Yep.
2: That's okay. how you're All funding right. your door. <laughs> That's right. Marlboro Man ads. The FCC is going to crack down on this because you can't have a smoking advertisement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No Marlboros were purchased in the making of this podcast. but <laughs>
0: yeah. No trademarks involved.
2: <laughs> but, yeah, like I, I, uh, there is something to me particularly American about the hardboiled detective novel. Now that you're connecting it to the Wild West, that really makes a lot of sense to me. I can see that. And these
0: are almost like mysteries of manners, in a sense.
2: No, totally. It's coming out of that same manners tradition. Yes. And even the, well, even the way that um, uh, uh, the Golden Age detective novel, the British novel, he always works with police and within the structures of the institution. Uh, the hard-boiled detective novel, the institution is corrupt, and he can never get justice or answers in the institution. He always has to go out. So it's always an ex-cop, or he gets kicked out of the force or retires right there at the beginning of the story. He's always having to work outside of the system. That always struck me as a peculiarly American idea, this distrust of the institution, this mm. distrust of the system, whereas the British would see things... I mean, it's the aristocracy, right? Like you've got to honor the tradition and the institutions even as they're crumbling.
0: Well, and the American, like, private detective, the Pinkerton type Mm -hmm. begins with the Pinkertons, Mm -hmm. which came out of, like, investigating crimes in the West and stuff like that. I think that's my understanding of it. Um, The Art of Manliness did a podcast interview a couple years ago with a guy who was a Dashiell Hammett Hammett expert, and Dashiell Hammett wrote Mm -hmm. The Maltese Falcon, among others. Uh, And he was in the Pinkertons. And so there's a really interesting interview where this guy's describing like how that oh. influenced his, his stories and like made him a different sort of mystery novelist than like Agatha Christie. and So that's oh, over I can in the,
2: completely see that. the Art of
0: Manliness feed. And
2: even this Wild West idea of, you know, who's the law in this town? Yeah. That is just like the hard-boiled detective novel.
0: Yeah. yeah. Where
2: the gangster and the corrupt police chief are almost parallels.
0: Hmm. Tim. Yes, sir. When you are reading a mystery story... Or a spy novel, or hardboiled, whatever it is, crime story. Um, you're about a third of the way book through the book here. What are the things that you're looking for as you read next? Like, what are the things that just... And I don't mean like the academic list of things you're looking for so much yeah. as what are the things that inspire and incite, excites you as you're reading.
2: He's gonna underline every adverb in part two. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh,
1: I'm just looking for anything salient, anything that's salient that just sticks out from the norm. And so that's what salient means.
2: <laughs> I was Googling that. Thank you.
1: There was a famous uh, insult of some very bland politician and so a, a journalist wrote that he was as salient as a sphere. And I thought, man, that's my one dog. of the best insults I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, anything, anything that stands forward that must be dealt with. And I feel like a third of the way through, it's kind of too early for that. Maybe halfway through, I should be a little bit more keen to find something salient. So I take my answer back. I think right now, I'm just trying to remember everything. You mean like
0: all the stuff she's presenting as you go along? Yeah,
1: yeah. And I I mean, not not the color of the napkins, but it does seem like um, the fact that we have too many clues in the murder, in the murdered... um, and his coach that you know i've got to keep track of those what exactly are those clues the conversations between people that seems really important also
0: the pre-trained
1: trains yeah, conversations. yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and so maybe like the salient features or the salient clues are going to jump out maybe halfway or a third of the or two-thirds of the way through
0: mm. yeah yeah
2: what are you looking
1: for david
0: Um, one of the things I've been paying attention to as I read it I and mean, like I said, I haven't read it in many years, but I read a lot of mystery solving or type books, just I love spy novels, as you guys know, I mentioned it practically every episode, one day I'll make us read a spy novel on on, yeah, uh, let's, be on, fun. on Why the show we the, the um Spy who came in from the Cold.
2: Or the Eric Ambler when I have that one. I already own I'm, that one.
0: <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking about Spy Who Came From the Cold. I'm, I've, as I'm reading it, I'm reading it now again to see if we can read it, like if it, would, if it would make sense. Eric Ambler, I think, would be just so fun because it's like he inspired all the mis- all the spy novelists that came after him, including like the James Bond characters and stuff. Um, and there's a lot of like bottle episode type things where they take place in a small place like a train. There's one that takes place on a boat. He's out at sea. Oh, um,
2: oh! Did we lose Tim?
0: I think we lost him. I'm Tim. Here. you there. I'm okay, here. good. But one of the things I'm looking forward to, or looking just looking at, is the way she reveals the characters, the other characters. Okay. So it's part, you know, part of the mystery that's fun about the mystery is not just the who done it, but the way she we get to know characters a bit at a time. So we know Mary a little more, and he's thought about her character a little bit more than other people. But he hasn't met, he hasn't really thought much about the Russian princess, for example. Or um, the sweetest lady. Like, he's had small interactions with them, but he hasn't given us his reflections on them. So how we get to know the characters, um, be, be the characters beyond Ratchet and and Portal, that's kind of what I'm excited about reading the second part. I'm also really interested, just in the structure of the book, how she's got it. It's almost like three acts. It's almost like a movie mm-hmm. structure. Yeah. You've got just three acts, with it seems like you know, we're at the end of the first act now. The murder has been committed. First gathering of clues. We know this is an uphill climb now. End of part one. Mm-hmm. Now part two. We interpret, and like it's just very is almost the way a traditional movie arc is is set up. Angelina, what are you th- what are you looking forward to?
2: Well, I'm really interested to see how else she's going to play with the form. What else she's doing here? It seems so deliberate to me how she's drawing attention to it. So what I would expect we're going to see in part two, if we follow the form, is um, a lot of confusion about how to interpret the evidence. There's probably going to be a lot of contradictory evidence, and there's, there's going to be uh, suspicion thrown on multiple characters. That's mm. just how a detective story goes. So it'll be interesting to, to me, to, how, how is she going to play with that, mm. this idea? Everyone's a suspect. Clues are everywhere. I love yeah. that. That was so good. Yeah. I don't usually get excited about movie taglines, but I got geekily excited about that. I was like, man, I wish I had known that was a tagline before I wrote my article. Which eliminating is that? That was so good. And I agree that it's cinematic. I mean, talk I mean, Tim, this is your love of plays right here. You could easily write a play out of this because it's one little it's one location on yeah. the on the train. Um, it's over a, a short amount of time. And uh not, I mean, you don't know what's going on in people's heads except for the detective.
0: And lots of people get speaking parts, so your actors would be happy. They would. So
2: maybe this is why they chose it as a film. Maybe we've got our finger on there. A lot of big <laughs> names get lots of speaking parts.
0: Yeah, I imagine. I can imagine Kenneth Branagh having just a great time turning this, adapting this into. Because you obviously you have to add language, you have to add different, like you have to add dialogue to make sure, it look for sure. a movie. So I imagine he had a lot of fun interpreting the voices. Um, it will bring in the voices of these characters to life.
2: I'm really hoping this is well done. I'm going to be so disappointed if it's not.
0: Well, at least we'll have somewhere to vent, right? <laughs> <laughs> Tim, uh, any final thoughts before we head out? I'm going to let you have the final, the final word here because you might have gotten the short I'm the so short sorry. End of the stick I'll be quiet now. I'm An- going to
2: let you uninterrupted. I'm not, I'm not judging
0: you, Angelina. <laughs> <laughs> Me neither.
2: I
1: um, am looking forward to reading, and by reading I mean listening to, Part two, as I cross the Rocky
0: Mountains today, don't don't let this don't get your don't get trapped in the snowfall. It might be a oh little bit goodness. on the, on the nose. A good a good warning. Thank you, David. <laughs> as you're traversing through the Yugoslavian mountains on your way to Colorado, <laughs> do your best not to to get trapped with eleven you other know, people. I, don't in your want, car. I forgot
2: to say this earlier, so I'm just going to make this my last little point that. The questions that Tim was raising about justice, uh, I think was emphasized again by the setting when they're told you know, oh we're in Yugoslavia, we can't let those police get involved. We have to have this wrapped up and presented to them already figured out. Yeah. Um, which, you know, this would have been pre-Cold War Yugoslavia.
0: Pre-World War Two, right?
2: Yes, pre-World War II. And so it's raising a lot of questions, I think, about the nature of justice. I think you're right. I, I was trying to figure out why they kept drawing attention to the fact that they were in Yugoslavia. Mm. And that must be it. Hmm. More than just that it's an exotic locale, but that you can't expect justice there.
0: Yeah. By the way, as far as the... Mo-
1: Go ahead, Tim. Sorry. I'm sorry. No, no, no. That's really interesting. I had not paid attention to that, Angelina.
0: One thing that's... There's something on, going around right now online. It's a... Um, featurette on the movie about how they shot it all on 65 millimeter film so if you're a film geek and you want to just watch a featurette and see a little behind the scenes stuff you could just google that it's like on the i think it's on youtube i think it's all over the internet so um all right well don't forget about our patreon giveaway so i'm going to send out a little message there uh on friday and i will ask the question again there about which post story was the precursor the kind of the launch of the detective story as we as we know it now and we will draw one person from all of those correct answers to give a copy of the murder of roger Ackroyd, the merger of Roger Ackroyd, um and uh
2: by lee iacocca
0: <laughs> and if you by don draper and if you are um if you, you know you haven't joined the patreon we certainly would Appreciate your support there, um, but no.
2: Tim needs no gas pressure. money. Come yeah, on, exactly. Wow. He's gonna get stranded in the Rockies somewhere.
0: <laughs> yeah, we're gonna have to send him like a hot air balloon to get him out. Um, and uh, I should
2: have said that in my NPR voice. <laughs> if you like the program, consider giving some gas money to Tim.
0: <laughs> we'll take your car and we'll turn it into your programming that you love. Um, and also, you know, thank you so much for subscribing and for uh, leaving comments and stuff. If you haven't done that yet, we certainly You know, would appreciate that. Uh, The biggest thing you can do, though, is just subscribe to the Close Reads feed. It helps us really get a sense of the numbers. Feel free to be subscribed to the Circe Podcast Network feed if you want to get all the shows at one place. But it's hard. The archives aren't great there because we just have so much content rolling through. So if you subscribe to each of the shows individually, that helps us out, and it helps you just get content in a way that's easy to go back to if you ever want to find it again. Um, It just kind of helps organize everything. So you can find us on pretty much every uh, you know every other every app where you can get podcasts you can find it through. I don't know what I'm saying anymore you're I, the
2: tech guy I in just, this group you can't go blank oh, what do you call that an app don't ask <laughs> no, me
0: I just got I just had one of those email notifications <laughs> pop I was like wait what is going on now um but uh, anyway, that's for Angelina. I don't even know what's. I don't know what's going on. I don't
2: anymore. know either. <laughs> We're trapped on a train in the snow.
0: I've got email notifications <laughs> popping up that are like, I've got a response to, and someone just walked in the room and.
2: And the murderer is here in the office. It's getting very our, tense.
0: Our pets' heads are falling off for Dumb and Drummer fans. Um, anyway, Tam, thanks for joining us. <laughs> My pleasure. <laughs> it's pure awesome. chaos.
2: <laughs> it's feeling a lot a more movie. like a hard boiled detective novel right now.
0: <laughs> well, for Angelina Stanford and Tim for Tim McIntosh and for all of us here at Cersei, I'm David Curran saying farewell here on Closeries on the Cersei Institute Podcast Networks. Thanks so much for listening. We will talk to you next time.